All right, stand to your feet. We're going to read the Word of God. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You can have a seat. Are we good on the lip, this mic or no? Yes, I can use it? Okay, good. So this scripture from Luke chapter 1 is often called the Magnificant. It's uh, Mary's song. So Mary goes, in the first part of Luke, we see this picture where Mary goes uh, to her cousin Elizabeth's house and she learns uh, that John the Baptist is going to be born to her and she's pretty excited. And um, then in response to the angel's revelation that she with child and she's going to have Jesus, she belts this tune out. And um, this is such an awesome, packed piece of scripture. But I want to just kind of frame it in, in how we would see it, how she would have seen it. Okay. We're just coming off of, and you can flip back just a few books in your Bible to Malachi, and toward the end of Malachi, in fact, the last verse talks about the idea of the birth of John being foretold. And so then there's this silence between the Testaments, between the Old and the New Testament, 400 year roughly, silence where God does not speak to his prophets. So you have this idea of like um, all sorts of military failure, the desecration of the temple, the reestablishment of things, and then the beat down again. And this is a cycle over and over and over again. And so for 400 years, just crickets. And so it's against that backdrop that we think of Mary's song. We think of it and we're like, oh, Mary, how cute. She's going to put this nice pretty baby in a manger and it's going to go well. And, and you start to think, well, wait a minute. It, there was a lot more going on there. There was oppression, there was tyranny, there was slavery. In fact, at the end of Malachi, when the prophecy is given, the people are just returning from captivity and because of the hardness in their heart and their worshiping of multiple gods, God uh, gives them over. And it's just a difficult existence. And so when Mary um, has this song, it's a turning point. The song itself kind of resembles a little bit of Hannah's song. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you would see this in 1 Samuel. And uh, she prays and prays and begs for a child, and God gives her a child, um, her son Samuel. And so Hannah um, pens this song, and it sounds very similar. Uh, there's a couple of things that are a little bit different, though. She was a song of praise and of adoration to God after the fact. She now has the child, and she's reporting what she has. What does Mary have but a promise? Mary has a word from an angel and a promise. 
and she writes this. If you pay close attention, nearly 20 times you'll see pronouns referring to God in Mary's song. And about 12 different times there's, there's uh, um, references to Old Testament pieces. So Mary was not just like some girl who didn't really pay attention. She knew the word. Mary was steeped in the scriptures, prophecies, and so she understood these things deeply, and so she's magnifying God. She's excited about what he's going to accomplish when all she has is a promise. It was a tumultuous time in history. It was the deepest, darkest, bleakest of times. Let me ask, have you been there? Have you? when you had nothing but a promise to hold on to, when you had nothing but the word of God to root you and to anchor you, that was it. That's all you had was the promise of God and his word. That's all. Have you ever been there? Because today we're going to look at what Mary needed, really what we need. And we're also going to look at what God did. So let's just start here. What's my need? And what's God's initiative? Well, I think, first of all, the, the idea that we really want to communicate and take home more than anything is that the coming of Jesus fulfills the promise of God's mercy. And that's a cause for rejoice. That's why we rejoice. That's why Mary rejoiced, because Jesus was going to come, and he was going to fulfill the prophecies. She rejoiced. That was her natural response, was to rejoice. You see, the need for being saved, getting coupled with the inability that I can't do it on my, on my own, results in a place of praise. Verses 46 and 47 say, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So it's pretty helpful to note, like, right here we learn, Mary was a sinner. She recognized it. Why else would she cry out and say, God, my Savior, unless she needed saving? She recognized the need for salvation. And that's all she wanted. Deliverance, it would seem, comes in peculiar packages, doesn't it? I mean, I think of the line, this child that you delivered will soon deliver you. That's some level of humility, isn't it? And this is Mary's confession. This is Mary's hope. This is Mary's state. This is your state. You stand before a holy, awesome, righteous, loving, merciful God. And he says, this is the only way to me. I'm going to put him in a manger. He's going to grow up to a cross. He's going to conquer a grave. And he's going to ascend to the heavens. In obedience to me and for your good and your joy. We need salvation. So it makes sense then how Mary responds where she responds in total humility. She says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
It's just humility. A poor peasant woman without any society, and she bears the king. She bears the king. Isn't that just like God, though? To just kind of flip the script? When you think you have a line on him and you understand what he's going to do, he does what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is and despised in the world. Could a child being put in a feeding trough next to horse poop be any more degrading? God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. And here's why so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, catch this, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What Jesus became. The infant in a manger became for you and for me and for Mary wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is Jesus. This we rejoice in. One author says it this way. Her child would also share this low estate being born in a manger and of poor insignificant Parents, you could right now drop a pin on any place in the Middle East and find someone who's poor, unnoticeable, and really without any sort of notoriety at all. God's like that. I find it awesome that she sings over an unborn mercy. She sings over this idea of what is coming with a promise that not anybody else really holds like she does. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Brothers, there are some of you who cannot even sing over a mercy when it is born. But here is a woman who sings over even an unborn mercy. I love that. It highlights what Isaiah talks about. In Japan. And I'm not going to read all of the relevant verses, but uh, verse 15 in chapter 57 of Isaiah says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite so truth to life then, what is your unborn mercy? What is our unborn mercy as a church? Let me flesh a little bit. What is the thing that God is asking you to hold on for that you can't see yet? You're not holding it with your hands. Is there a child you're praying for? Is there a marriage you're working through? 
Is there a relationship that needs restored? Is that the unborn mercy that you can't see yet and by faith and through promise God's asking you to cling to it? Or what about us as a church? What was the line in the song we just sang? Do you long to see it all made new? Uh, Right here. (laughs) This world's a trash pit. I want God to now. I I want marriage and the sanctity of it held high. I want God exalted. I want families living out the mission of God. I want single people knowing that God has a plan and a purpose for their lives. I want teenagers understanding their identity and purpose and calling. I want kids to know they're loved and secure. I want it made new. Don't you? I want it made new. And that's what we're after this morning. That's what I'm asking us to consider. What's your unborn mercy? What's that thing that you're clinging to that you need God to do? See, the coming of Jesus fulfills the promise of God's mercy. And that's why you rejoice. Secondly, God's mercy and Israel's fear. Or you could say, I think maybe even your bulletins might have listed uh, Israel's fear and faith. You see, the idea here is that our faith in his mercy. Now, I want to, I don't know how to say this. In Ephesians 2, if you go to Ephesians 2 and you read, there's this, there's this phrase where, where Paul is talking about being dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Do dead people make choices? Quick survey. No. Not a whole lot of dead people making choices, okay? And so it says, we were dead in our sins. Literally, he's communicating this idea. I don't have the ability to wake myself up or make a choice that's good. I don't. And so it says that in verse 4, probably just this pivotal piece in Ephesians 2, where he says, but God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us. And then it goes on all the way through verse 10, talking about by grace and through faith that we are saved. He woke you up. And so that's what I'm looking at this morning. God's mercy. See, our faith in his mercy, it shatters. It shatters imagined self-sufficiency. I mean, wouldn't you just love to stop relying on yourself? That's like a rhetorical question because all of us would say, no, I got this. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'll be honest. I want to be done with self-sufficiency. Like, um, I want to be done feeling threatened when somebody confronts me in a sin. Do you? I want to be done feeling Less than because I can't get something right. And so that's what Mary talks about. There's a marked switch in verse 50 where she goes from singular to plural. And she says this. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See those first couples, 50, and then the last two, verses 54 and 55, have this idea of mercy and faith. Really, the term that you see there is fear, but fear in the sense that is being talked about is really faith. Show me what you fear, and I'll show you what you're putting your faith in. Moses, in Exodus 34, captures this. It says, starting in verse 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. There's a little footnote there in the ESV. Um, It could also be translated to thousands of generations to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, it talks about this idea that the demonstration of God's love and his mercy is to a thousand generations. The demonstration of God's wrath and his anger over sin is to the third generation. The point here is not to be literal. The point is to understand that God's long game has always been the demonstration of his love. His long game has always been the demonstration of his mercy to a repentant people who will follow after him in his ways. That's God's long game. You see it said in places like Deuteronomy 5 and Deuteronomy 7, Psalm 89 and Psalm 103, 17. Ultimately, it comes back down to what happened in Genesis chapter 12, where God makes a promise with Abraham. And then over the next number of chapters, continues to confirm this covenant. And finally, in chapter 17, he ends up saying, look, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And he goes on and he goes on. The whole idea here is that God's mercy ought to lead to our fear or our faith in him. The second thing he talks about, or the second thing Mary rather talks about in verses 51 through 53 is pride and might and wealth she has this rebuke as he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So this is where we get to imagined self-sufficiency. And you look at pride, you look at might, and you look at wealth. Notice how Mary actually says it. The The proud in the thoughts of their hearts. That's consistent with New Testament literature that everything that comes out of your mouth is actually something that you've treasured here in your heart. You can look at it like Matthew 12, 33 through 37. He talks about this. Out of the overflow of the heart, the speaks. If I believe in my heart that I'm like God's gift to humanity because I'm so amazing and wonderful and kind. 
and I've done so many great things. I'm, I'm awesome at my job. I'm an excellent student. I'm an incredible athlete. I'm the best realtor. I'm the best farmer. Who knows? You start filling in the blanks of where the pride in your heart rises up, and there's just no place for it. It says he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Pride causes me to think I don't need you. Pride causes me to think I don't need him. Pride causes me to think I don't need anybody. And then she talks about this idea of how he's brought down the mighty. Notice the very clear designation from their thrones. (laughs) This is like a self-proclaimed kingdom. You're like, man, I've seen those people who really think they're in charge of their lives. Yeah, look in the mirror, okay? We, we really think we have this figured out. We look in the mirror, we're like, this is how it should work. This is how sh- things should go. This is how it should work. It, it should. It just has to. And we get so locked into this idea that we are people that, like, I have on the throne of my heart my life. This is how it's going to How many of you in the last two weeks would say, I have been disappointed with the outcome of something? I mean, like, (laughs) like that's only two weeks. Multiply that by 80 years. Good luck surviving in joy when you're constantly met with frustration over what uh, the management of your life becomes. Not Mary. She seems to be quite happy relying on the fact that God, like, is directing her path and is in control of her life. What phrase does she use earlier in Luke? I am the Lord's servant. Let it, to, let it be to me as you say. Okay, that sounds like me most days. Or how about this? Wealth. Wealth just says, you know, I can have or I can acquire whatever I need. You see, when when God rebukes someone who has money, it's not the fact that they have money that he rebukes them. It's that they trust in it. That's the issue. If you're someone who's always fearful of never having enough, guess what your God and your idol is? Money. If you're someone who thinks that you'll never need anything from anyone because you already have enough, guess what your God is? Money. And so Mary's over here saying, look, the wealthy, the wealthy sent away empty. So in all this, God's mercy produces this fear in me, this faith that I have in him, and an insatiable hunger. And that's why I love Jesus' advent, both his first one and the second one that's coming. Because the first one was a systematic dismantling of my imagined self-sufficiency. He just takes all the ideas that I had of like what I can provide for myself, what I need from others, and who I need to do life with and says, look, listen, <laughs> let's, have a, let's have a chat. <laughs> it says it this way. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. We can only grasp the gospel's sweetness if we first wrestle with its offense. You can't save yourself. You just can't. So truth to life, uh, 
ultimately, when we see this term, fear the Lord, when Mary says in her prayer, the, the uh, mercy of God is for those who fear him or the fear of the Lord, it's, it's not uh, to be terribly afraid, though that's certainly part of it, right? Like he can crush me in a moment, but by his mercy and his grace, he invites me into relationship. But the primary piece that we're looking at here is true to life. It means sustaining a joyful, astonished awe and wonder before the Lord. That's what it means to fear God. I want to have a joyful, reverent adoration of all that he's done in Christ. That's what it means to fear the Lord. So maybe a good question as we wrap up here is just this. In what ways have areas of of imagined self-sufficiency made faith in God hard for me? Well, I, I, I suppose when I look at my checkbook at the end of the month, that makes it a little bit more difficult for me to trust God because I can't see what's coming. Or maybe I thought I was in control and then my child died. I thought things were going great, and then I got called into my boss's office, and he was like, guess what? You've got two weeks left. What ways have my self-sufficiency-dependent attitudes and mindsets, how have they come crumbling down? And I want to submit to you, that is a mercy that they have crumbled down. It is a mercy that you have been found wanting before God. Because now he can remake you. So as we close, I just want us to stick with this idea that the coming of Jesus fulfills the promise of God's mercy and and we rejoice as a result of that. Redemption, um, deliverance, it comes in peculiar packages. A little over 2,000 years ago, the peculiar package was an infant born in a crowded city during a festival and all sorts of craziness that was happening, tyranny and, and no word from God free. And onto the scene busts this glorious promise to a peasant woman who's engaged to a man who is fighting through the social stigma of a pregnant woman before marriage. That's how we got Jesus. And so as we leave here, let's just consider what does imagined self-sufficiency look like? How does Christ want to employ his mercy over us? Let me just pray for us. You are welcome to stay here for prayer if you want. Uh, There'll be some elders here. Evan will be in the office for prayer. Um, But for the rest of you who are hungry and ready, uh, food through the uh, doors to the all-purpose room. Jesus, thank you for your obedience to your Father. Without you, we've got no hope. Thank you that by coming, you just dismantled any way that I would depend upon myself. And we pray that for our church, just for Northfield as a whole, just in your mercy, crush our self-sufficiency. Crush our dependence on our ability and, and remake us into people who are alive by your spirit. It's in your strong name that we pray. Amen.